Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello, it's Hadja and once again, I'm bringing you a special episode of the Dabblers Book Club. In fact, this is a super special episode and I'm beyond thrilled to introduce a truly wonderful guest. Now, if you've been with us since the start of the season, you'll know just how much we loved the 2020 Booker winner, Shuggy Bain. It's Douglas Stewart's stunning debut novel set in 1980s Glasgow, and it centres around the relationship between a young boy, Shuggy, and his mother, Agnes, a glamorous but troubled woman who's left to raise her three children in a decimated mining town while battling her demons, drink and poverty. Shuggy Bain's a brutal novel that somehow manages to deliver both punches and hugs, and for all the pain, confusion and heartbreak found within it, it'll make you want to call your mum and tell her you love her. After loving this book, you can imagine just how thrilled I was when Douglas agreed to join me on the Dabblers Book Club to talk about his work, finding both your voice and peace, and loving parents when sometimes it's the hardest thing to do. Shuggy Bane is out now in paperback, and if you haven't yet read it, I highly recommend you get your hands on it. Until then, if you don't mind me alluding to a couple of spoilers, please enjoy this wonderful interview. Douglas is so full of warmth and wisdom that I've been on a cloud ever since, and I hope it does the same for you. Hello. Hello. Hi, Douglas. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for joining me on here. This is an absolute pleasure to, to have you. It's been quite a year for you, I imagine, release of Sugar Bane, casually picking up the 2020 Booker Prize. Uh, I imagine relentless book PR and interviews in quite an unconventional way. How has it been? And are you ready to talk about something else yet? I'm not going to let you, but are you ready? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think I am actually definitely ready to talk about something else. It's been amazing. I mean, it's been probably the greatest year of my career and beyond my wildest dreams uh all you know all good things and the thing about winning a prize that's most important is just how it connects you with more readers and brought more people to Shuggy and Agnes's story um but then on the other hand it's been a really surreal year because all of these phenomenal things have been happening and I haven't left the house none of us have left the house but especially for me, all these like once in a lifetime experiences have been happening through this little camera at the top of my laptop. And and so it sometimes it just feels very unreal or very surreal. Um, and it took a moment actually for the Booker Wind to sink in. It took about six weeks for it to really like hit bottom and be like, oh, my God, I just did that. Yeah, because you've got none of the parties and the build up or the actual ceremony itself or anything. No, I haven't met like tons of people. And, you know, one of the strange things you might not know is because it's my debut novel, you know, most writers spend a fair amount of their time meeting readers or going and doing readings in bookstores or or that. And I've actually only ever done one of those. And that was for the book launch. And so it was just really my big sister and my friends and everyone in the audience I knew. And then the rest of it has all happened through this blinking green light. And uh, it's, it's, it's very weird. Got another book coming out uh, next year, haven't you? So hopefully it'll be a slightly different experience. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I hope I'm equal to it. I hope I can handle it. But but it's been good. I mean, the good thing about this and actually supports 
a lot of what I believe about literature and that's accessibility. And yeah. so it's good to be able for people to be able to come to festivals that might not ordinarily be able physically to come or feel like, you know, they didn't want to show up at a literary festival. And I get so much feedback that, you know, the virtual world increases accessibility in that way. And that's absolutely what Shuggy would love to do. I might as well just get straight into Agnes, if that's okay, because obviously totally. it's, it's kind of a love story to Agnes, a painful love story. Um, you say you love exploring sort of, and t- testing conflicted love and uh-huh. uh, the, about the exhaustion of loving a parent such as such as Agnes. Because the love that Shuggy has for his mother, it's not just love and performative rituals and saying I love you. It's devotion. It's real mm-hmm. love as an action. It's agape really it's that love which gives but does not count the cost and there are so many elements where you'd go oh she's a bad mother or she shouldn't do this and shouldn't do that and that she should be sacrificing herself and obviously when you talk about people in poverty we expect so much more of them as parents I think we expect them to sacrifice so much more do you think as a society we have quite a classist view of familial love what are we getting wrong and right about how we view that sort of love I think you're you're right when you say you know, children are remarkable in the fact that Shuggy can just has this capacity for his mother because also he has no other context and she is the center of his universe. So he can give and give and give. Mm-hmm. And and children, I think, are remarkable like that. It's, it's actually only, I think, when we become adults and we can sort of scope around and see other people living different ways that we know our family life is a little bit unusual for whatever that is. But you do whatever you can. But we're really hard from a class lens, especially on women, I think, because we often deny them any opportunity to succeed when you're a single mother, when you're a working class mother. People are hard on Agnes because they feel like she should go out and get work and pick herself up and get on. But then who's going to look after her kids? And is she going to make enough money as uh, as a mother that didn't have you know higher education in order to offset that? And yet we bring all of our own judgments to her and we sort of cram them on her. And and what I wanted to do with Shuggy was actually before Agnes is a mother and before she's an alcoholic, long before she's an alcoholic, she's just a person. And part of that comes from my own experience of loving my own mother through addiction. But I wanted to show Agnes as a very rounded woman. Not all of her's nice, not all of her's great, but but she's a person. She's a fully, you know, functional person. We see her as a lover and as a friend and as a foe and a daughter and a wife and a spurned wife. But she is, you know, she's very generous. She's very kind. She's loving. She's looking to be adored. She wants some glamour. She's frustrating. And then she's also very deeply hurt, um, you know, and so many things happen to her. So she's very vulnerable. But we often, especially, I think, with working class mothers and especially with any working class woman that goes into addiction, we label them so quickly as an alcoholic. And that's what you are. And that's all you are. And that's never all that any person is, um, certainly not a woman. And and I just wanted to do that with Shuggy. I wanted you know, we had to understand why Shuggy loved his mother. And and for that to be true, she's a she's a full person. Absolutely. Um, my mother listened to our episode about it and she's a um, working class mother. I mean, she became a teacher to support us, um, mm. fam- single, single parent to four children. Mm. Um, and she often feels this real guilt. And that guilt is, I think, if, but she, if she had money, there wouldn't be that level of guilt and there wouldn't be that level of scrutiny. And uh, I was wondering mm-hmm. how different would Agnes's story have been? with money 
Oh, I think it would have been different on every single level. I think, first of all, she would have had mobility. And so when the neighborhood was bad, when the neighbors sort of used their solidarity against her, when her husband left her, when all of these things were happening, she could have upped herself and moved away from the problem. And I think also with money, she would have had access to higher education. You know, Deborah Orr's uh, really masterful memoir called Motherwell. Yes, yeah. Deborah's a, a real life person who would have lived a contemporary life to the character of Agnes Bain. And when she does get out of, you know, um, out of Motherwell and go to university, it says very clearly on a leaflet she's handed that only 0.003% of university students at that time came from the labor classes, they called them. And if you slice that even finer, for a woman, that's, you know, there's no chance mm. there for you to get that upward mobility. So if Agnes had had money, she would have had potential and just avenues that were open to her. Um, and I think, you know, much of Agnes's journey is about her sort of sense of self-worth. And I understand what your mother's saying about, like, she's, she, you know, working class mothers, I think, often feel a lot of shame or feel people are people feel like they're allowed to comment on how they're raising their kids or or the the role they have in society and agnes rejects that she has this huge sense of self-worth and and actually that's what becomes her achilles heel because the women around her are like who do you think you are you know and they start to pick at her and you know they do the job of the patriarchy in a lot of ways by sort of pulling this woman down to a peg or two but yeah agnes if she had money would have everything would have been different but also if, the, if I'd have written a middle-class story, then it wouldn't have felt anything like Shuggy Bain, because what I wanted to show is the Bains were going through a tough time. But because there was 26% unemployment in these parts of Glasgow at that time, many families were going through a tough time. And I think if I'd written a middle-class story, it would have been one family keeping it at home while everyone else around them was getting on with their lives. But really, this was a moment of like collective sorrow or hurt or harm. And and there is a solidarity in that. It's a very twisted solidarity. But I wanted to show this just wasn't the Baines. It just yeah. wasn't Agnes. Well, you talk about um, how in the US, the reception to it's been so different than the UK. Obviously, we are obsessed with class one way or the other. Um, and I think we'll always take a story like that and put it in the context of class because it, we know that it's not just one family and I, um, it's not just one story. It, it's, mm. it's one of many, many stories. And I think the older I get, I'm more seeing that... Um, who we are is just so shaped by and not even who we are what we do it's so shaped by everything that's around us we're not that original even to the smallest point where me and my partner were walking around the block and we literally heard another couple go oh should we just do a short lap and it was like that's what we say to each other on our little <laughs> walks even to that tiny tiny um, minuscule level we are so shaped by everything we're not that original or you know um and i think that's what's the power about this story is that and I guess there's obviously the big Thatcher element running through it. It's like, you've, this has happened. you've done this. People in power have done this. Um, did you intend it to be so political in that way? I didn't, actually. I intended it to be just a love story. It was about a mother and son. And I wanted, you know, growing up queer in Glasgow and the son of a single mother, I'd always, my entire world was women or femininity or my own effeminacy. And yet the city is pretty masculine, you know, and as a boy, everything that was I was supposed to be involved in was about men or about kicking balls or fighting or chasing girls. And it just wasn't my life. And and so I wanted to just write this love story about these two feminine souls that were trying to get on underneath this situation. But you're right about like class intersects with everything we do. 
you know, I think one of the strange things about me is growing up poor in Glasgow for the first 25 years of my life and then spending the last 20 years of my life in New York. I don't know that I could have written Shuggy Bane if I'd still lived in Glasgow, no matter what my future had have become. But it was only sort of coming to New York that I was able to sort of look back and see it clearly and also kind of have a wee bit of the bravery it took to be able to write the book because, you know, when you're a working class writer or when you're writing a working class narrative, the middle class says to you, oh, I don't want to know about that. Why are you telling me that? But then the working class also says to you, why are you telling other people (laughs) (laughs) about that? You know, don't show us up sort of thing. And and so like that distance for me allowed me to be as honest as, you know, a weird word in fiction, but to be as honest as I could be and to to not pull my punches. And and so the America thing was important for me just to get that distance. Um, I have literally got written down. What does New York offer you that you feel Glasgow didn't? Could you have become who you are now without New York? <laughs> so you're uh, half. I mean, I've answered that. I don't think I could have <laughs> become who I am now without Glasgow. Um, because people often think like New York was the making of me. Glasgow was the making of me. And I'm so grateful for it. No matter if it was a tough time and a lot of people went through a tough time, it made me the man that I am. And it made me, even as a kid, creative and empathetic. And I'm proud to come from the working class. What New York gave me was a sort of just distance and clarity, but also a huge sense of longing. You know, part of the reason why I could write this book over 10 years and sustain that energy was because I was homesick and because I wanted to be around these people and I wanted to tell these stories. And so New York, by forcing me to work over here to make a living, actually gave me the longing to write Shuggy Bane. Yeah. I mean, it's it just so beautifully told. There was one line, um, which I think you mentioned as well, uh, in previous interviews, the fr- a front door of her own, wanting a front door of her own. And I remember, I mean, now I think, I just want a garden. Um, <laughs> but that was that was really powerful for me. I mean, I, I was raised my first, my early years were on a council estate and I didn't realise it was a council estate until I was sort of at, Totally. I think probably in my 20s you just think well this is home and and I think under Thatcher we bought it and it's weird seeing your life through that those political um you know um what are the basic things like that that you really value now when you've had that experience and that um that perspective that for something you know a front door holds so much value what what are the smaller things like that that you really value now yeah you know, you're right, Agnes has really humble dreams. She wants a front door of her own, a wee bit of glamour, not too much, you know, to be adored by her husband. And, you know, before I tell you about the small things, that perspective statement that you made is really powerful for me. Because growing up like that in Glasgow, I didn't know any different. And so you get on with it. And just like you said, and that is life. And those are the people I love. And that is the world that I'm from. And only now in 2021 that you look back and then people are sort of reading my work, do they sort of push on me a sense of, oh, that was terrible. And actually, I think to myself often, yeah, it might have been, but I didn't know any better. And so that's why Shuggy, first of all, can love his mother with that relentlessness, but but also why everyone can pick themselves up and keep going on, you know, that sort of perspective is a really interesting thing. But for me, what I wanted still sort of hasn't changed. I just want peace. Um, And a lot of that had to do with my inability to read books until I was a man, because I didn't have peace inside myself because I was feeling rotten about my mother's addiction. And I was feeling rotten about being queer. And I was worried about all these things and money. And then I didn't have peace in my environment 
because a lot of people were hurting or going through a tough time. And so I couldn't focus on books. So what I wanted as a kid is what I still want as a man. And I never like, um, you know, I always appreciate it when I have it. And that's just a sense of peace. Yeah, absolutely. And um, speaking about literature and turning to books, I imagine you sort of found more peace through queer literature and um, and understood your queer identity better. How was that? What was your first introduction to queer literature? And what did that feel like when you first realised, hang on, this story, I you know, can relate to this? Yeah, I was probably about 18 or 19, and that would have been 1995-ish. And so doing, like, at the time, queer literature was always on a bookshelf at the back of any bookstore. And it would have a side at the top of it, but it was never mixed in with just literature. And so you would go and there would be, first of all, other men sort of like, you know, the busiest section in many bookstores was the queer section. And we were all just very sort of glancing at the shelves and trying to discover ourselves. And it was like this little community hub. But, you know, there was some wonderful nonfiction books by Mark Simpson that came out in the 90s that let me understand queer politics and the gay rights movement. But when I start to read people like E.M. Forster, when I read Maurice, when I read James Baldwin or Alan Hollinghurst, too, I mean, that's when you start to discover this whole facet of yourself that you don't see written down. It takes me a long time to then discover working class queer voices, you know, to start to see those things. Because to be fair, at the beginning of literature, it was always upper class men or middle class men. Often they lusted after a working class man, but it was never really told from that working class queer yeah. point of view. And so a lot of my writing through The New Yorker tries to just readjust that balance. I've heard you say that progress doesn't always come to every social class and demographic at the same time. And I think sometimes we mistake social mobility as a sort of cheat to acceptance. Mm -hmm. So you think, well, if I can just earn more money, be this, then I'll accept my queer identity or mine was an ex-Muslim identity, whatever that is. Did you realise what you were after as you're growing and finding this piece, dealing with the loss of your mother and all of that? You know, I'm often asked how terrible was it to be queer in Glasgow in the 80s? And I think to myself, actually, for a lot of people, it wasn't bad, but that had much more to do with access and mobility and being able to find your community. For me, it was pretty bad because I didn't know anything other than the housing scheme that I was on. And I wouldn't maybe have the money to go into a nightclub. Then when you're there, what do you do as a 16 year old boy? It's a bit weird. You can't talk to anyone. And so for me, it was very sort of limited and quite dark. Um, but you're right in the fact that, you know, I live in New York now, but all of the charity work I do is still to help kids that are chucked out of their house when their parents, when they come out to their parents at 15. And so we keep thinking as liberal cultural people that progress is happening and progress is happening, but it's the boats aren't rising at the same speed. And I always feel a huge burden when people say to me, but Glasgow and Newcastle and Birmingham is so much better for queer rights. And I say, yeah, for sure it is 1000%. But please, let's not take our eyes off of the kids that might still feel left behind, whatever they are. Because they have to know where to go. Like, the, you know, unless you're coming to them, they don't know. Yeah. And I also think it's d damaging when we keep saying, oh, things are better and we're living these great lives. And there might be a wee boy or a wee girl out there that are sort of looking around and thinking, oh, it doesn't feel better for me. And so I think we have a responsibility at the sharp end of progress to keep saying, yeah, but let's make sure we're not leaving people behind or just acknowledging that people might not always be on the journey at the same speed absolutely and yeah there's there's still so much to do and it, it you know it was a terrible time for to be queer i think before really gay pride could give everyone an example to look towards and 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 push for inclusion but it was also a terrible time to be a heterosexual man and to be a heterosexual woman because narrowness was really rough 
And, you know, a lot of what I write about in Shuggy Bane is about the effects of masculinity. And we use the term toxic masculinity, but just the narrowness, you know, the men are hard drinking, hard fighting, hard loving. Um, and they don't express their fears or their tenderness or their, you know, their vulnerability. And, and that has terrible effects for everybody in society, but them first of all. Um, and, you know, Shuggy goes through incredible homophobia in the book, but it's all sanctioned. It's all sort of upheld and he has no one to turn to, to be like, oh, this just happened to me. It's just as it was. And the truth is, is even some of the people who love him most in the book still try to alter his uh, effeminate nature. You, you know, his brother tries to teach him to walk like a proper man because he just can't imagine his place in society. And in the 80s, that's that's what it felt like. You know, people couldn't see a happy life for you. Um, they couldn't picture you as a happy adult. And so um, the homophobia had this real sort of <laughs> angle of trying to change the person who might be queer. And sometimes out of love, you know, sometimes it is It's like being a soft boy in a hard world. It's like sometimes, it's like, oh, I can't even comprehend the challenges you'll have if you don't just conform. Um, yeah, I remember coming out myself and the fear that my family had for me on my behalf because at 16, they just couldn't see me in Glasgow and in the world, mm -hmm. in the housing schemes that I grew up in. They couldn't, you know, they just couldn't imagine my place in the universe. And and that was a, a fear-based thing for them. But I had a journalist's jaw on the floor the other day because he was like, you must be really angry at everyone in the 70s and 80s. And I said, you would have to be angry at society because everybody was at it. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody upheld um, the repression of queer people and it was just... It was just who we are. You know, if someone does it today, then I think they should be really sharply condemned. But there were so many people who were good people, I think, in yeah. the 70s who were doing in the 80s, who just weren't educated in a different way. Yeah, and I think that's what really comes across in your writing or your interviews. It's just that relentless love and compassion for people. And um, and I do share, I sound very negative a lot of the time and quite bitter, actually, about <laughs> my upbringing. Um, but... Yeah, we are. It's not to make excuses and it's not to say that people weren't fighting for things. We know more about what people have fought for now. You know, we always think, oh, well, no one complained in the 60s, 70s, 80s. It's like, they did. They just didn't have the same platforms. Um, totally. And I, yeah, the love that comes through, it shines through Shuggy Bane and that compassion you have. It's, um, it's really just so beautiful. There's one bit. One bit that keeps, I, I keep saying this actually with, in a terrible Scottish accent to my sister whenever we're sort of, being down in the dumps and it's the poor me's that bit the poor me's and it's that kind of don't self-pity well, get on with it where do you think the line is between yeah, self-pity and healing forget about the poor me's uh, yeah uh, I think Glaswegians have a really tough time with self-pity and also pity from other people you know it's it's a really it was interesting because part of my mentality as a west of Scotland man was to never be allowed to think of myself as exceptional and people understand that when I say you're never exceptionally great, you know, you're one of many and there's a solidarity there. But it was also not exceptionally hard done to. Any time that I ever had sort of a feeling, and even after losing my mother as a kid, you know, it, when I was grieving in that, I, it was very much about bucking up and getting on with it and, and moving forward, you know, and you would always be met with the refrain of, everybody's got a story, son, you know, everybody's got a sad story. And that, in a way, gives somebody nowhere to take their hurt or to process it because it tells you just to shut up and it tells you to hold it down and people are trying to help but that's really the message that's reinforced especially I think if you're a man um, and so Shuggy for me was a way to deal with trauma and it was a way for me to explore it and to look at it and 
to spend time with it. But it was also an exercise in empathy for me because when you grow up as a kid of addiction or of homophobia or of poverty, it just happens to you. You don't have, you didn't choose it. You can't control it. It's it happens and sometimes happens quite relentlessly. But I didn't have a chance to process it either as a kid. You just have to deal with it and move forward. And so in writing Shuggy Bane, it forced me, I could have published the book about 18 months after writing it. You know, it took 10 years, but I could have published it. It would have been a very different book because it took me 10 years to think, okay, well, I've written this, but really why is Agnes like that? You know, why do the men do that? Why does sectarianism exist? And so I had to go back and sort of understand the root causes that made people behave as they would and deepen my empathy, even for bad characters and sort of, you know, and trying to show them a little bit of compassion because I don't think they were fundamentally born bad. I think they were shaped by the society they were in. Yeah, and I think actually for me that's where a lot of books that my partner particularly likes that I think fall down for me is that, okay, why are they an arsehole? <laughs> Why are they mm -hmm. acting like this? Give me more because I I can't believe that we're not all carrying hurts, which causes this. Maybe some of us are just awful from the day we're born. Fine, maybe. Yeah. But I don't believe that, especially when it's such a um, you know, you're such a product of the society in the in the world. You've talked about getting over this idea of what right do I have to write this stuff, and I think that's especially working class creatives. When we don't recognize our own voices out there, we think, well, I don't know enough. I don't have the tools. I don't know enough about books. I mean, our one of our taglines for our podcast is for people who've never read Chaucer and probably never will. We didn't get that literary canon, um, which makes us think we just don't know enough. Um, what took you from that feeling to clearly being a man of confidence and with a sense of assurance uh, when it comes to your creative voice? Honestly, the, the answer is 40 years. It took a long time. Um, because I didn't feel it. You're totally right. I, I agree with everything you said. And even when, you know, you don't see how families conduct themselves on the page or the people you love represented in fiction, um, you don't then feel necessarily that your own story is worthy of sharing because everything else seems so gilded or, you know, something to aspire to. And that's, of course, is wrong. This is why representation matters. And publishing and literature is one of the last, you know, forms of art to sort of really embrace working class input. I think of painting, I think of fashion, I think of all these other things where working class voices really, um, you know, sing. And literature still, you know, we still are sort of on the margins there. And that's, you know, because of the middle class control, because the middle class rec like recognizes like, it's because it's so wrapped into academia and higher education. There's so many root causes there. But the truth is, is um, we need, you know, working class voices. We're such a huge part of society. We're about a third of it, I think. And yet we're not a third of literature. Um, and, you know, and we should be. And so I don't know what made me overcome it other than uh, just the need to share this story and, and to keep pushing. And, and so I hope everybody, I hope everybody does that. Yeah, I mean, it's like... 7% public school in this country, 93% state school. I mean, that doesn't sort of give the full picture of everything, but... Uh... I guess the third I'm talking about from my perspective is people who are living in real poverty. Or... And I was hoping that Shuggy would help a little bit with that too, because Shuggy was actually rejected. My agent told me 20 times, but she actually stopped telling me. It was 44 times and was rejected in Scotland and in London and in New York. But people within publishing didn't know who would care about this working class family. They wrote me these lovely rejection letters that said, this will win the booker, you know, two years before the book's published. They would say that at the top of the letter, but they'd be like, but we just don't know how to connect this with the readership. 
And that is a class comment. It absolutely is. It's the stupid idea of that this story being a risk. And I think that's what working class people feel is that, oh, you're viewing me as a risk rather than helping mitigate any risks you foresee. <laughs> totally. And and we don't have any concept that we're different to everyone else or to the margin. So it was actually only when publishing started to tell me <laughs> that I was coming from left field. I was like, actually, this is the center of my experience. You know, there's nothing left field about me. Um, but it's also the, the really short-sighted part of it is, is the ability to also engage with working class readers, right? Mm. So the publishing industry just doesn't sort of engage in that way. And the thing that's been really amazing about Shuggy and most validating for me is when people who grew up around Eugene's or Shuggy's or Agnes's say, oh my God, finally, you know, and that's the power of books. I have one last thing I want to ask about Eugene mm -hmm. because you because you've mentioned it. <laughs> that moment... I mean, honestly, I haven't read a book in a while. I mean, I read Khalid Hosseini's The Kite Runner a while ago, and I got really into that and crying while reading it. Um, and this moment with Eugene, where he wants Agnes to be normal, I guess, by his standards. He just wants her to be able to control her demons. And I just, I was so angry because I was like, you are everything that is not real love about accepting someone in that moment for who they are. And I've never wanted to shout at a book or want something so different. I was willing honestly it was such a deep guttural feeling about this moment I was like don't drink the thing um how how early in the process did you conceive Eugene and and did you know that's what his character would do that's a brilliant question I'm a huge Thomas Hardy fan and one of the books that bothers me the most is Tess of the Durbervilles because mm -hmm. how Tess is turned and manipulated and her entire fate is decided by the men who will either love her or deem her worthy of love or make her respectable and I can I you know it's, it's a book that's about 140 years old I don't know but <laughs> I still can't get over it um and so Eugene in a way is a little bit of that but he's also a man where he believes he is the hero for this woman's life and if he loves her enough and if he puts enough glue and wood screws and he fixes her he can get Agnes and and fix her because he just he has, he, has, he actually has such belief in himself, you know, and men sometimes do, um, they can do anything, they can change the fate of any woman. And of course, that's not true. That's absolutely not true. Agnes's journey and her struggle and her hurt and her pain is her own. And Eugene only sort of sets her down a bad path. And he actually then comes to regret it, you know, and he can't quite believe that he had he, his love, he's such an upstanding man, that his love isn't enough to, to fix this lady. Um, but also, I had wanted Agnes also to be under the pressure of being normal. Shuggy's always bombarded with this. Just, you know, you're no right. Why are you like that? Be normal. And Agnes is too. And, and it was such a, you know, in communities that are very tight like that, you had to conform. You had to be all right. And Agnes is a victim to that as much as Shuggy is. Yeah, Eugene was just—it's was, was a brilliant use as well because it was, you know, that I guess that was the midpoint, um, and it was that was her downfall. And you're thinking, oh no! And even then, I was just hoping, praying for something different. Um, that scene where they're all in the room and one of the women around, and they're all day drinking, and they invite the guy over, and I think, oh, um, so my mum was talking about the scene as well about the luxury that because I think that. From the outside, you think, oh, that's a terrible situation to put a child in. It's like, yeah, but a middle-class person would just pay for a childminder. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's the difference. They can afford not to expose their child to their demons. Totally. And they would serve some dips and everything would be fine. Exactly.
it's been such a joy to speak to you. One last question is, what are you most looking forward to when all this is over? And I mean both pandemic, both lockdown, both Shuggy, if you get to, <laughs> to breathe from him for two minutes. Um, what are you most looking forward to about? I think I'm most looking forward, a very selfish answer, but I'm most looking forward to connecting with readers. I think Shuggy's gone out into the world and I haven't. And so it just, I feel like I've been broadcasting as a little bit of an echo chamber now where I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all I'm doing is talking. And so it'll be good just to sort of talk to people and see how the book touched them or, or didn't, you know, I'm sure I'll get a lot of criticism too. Uh, oh, one star reviews are a great place for that. There's some hilarious, <laughs> hilarious things. I uh, know. My very favourite one actually was because it was written, there's a lot of broad Scots or Glaswegian in, in it. And somebody wrote, this is for, a this is a book for people who like hillbilly English. And I thought to myself, just wait till the Scottish people read that. We're all going to be in coaches. We're coming to get you. <laughs> You're in danger, mate. <laughs> oh, do, 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 so when you do read one stars, is it quite a healing sort of thing? You're able to just laugh at it and be like, fine. You know, it's not so much the quality of the, the review, but it, when the book first published, I read the reviews and then I learned, oh, I should stop doing that. Actually, it's not for the writer, you know, and you can't control it. And it, there's nothing you can do about it. So about three weeks after publication, I just decided oh, I don't read any of them, good or bad. It's amazing the different experiences we have reading the same book. It's mm -hmm. and it's all a story of who you are. I think mm -hmm. so. A friend of mine was talking about being attached to our stories, and there's this huge history of stories. And actually, our whole our whole lives are an attachment to a story that we have about ourselves. And actually, Eugene mm -hmm. fits into that. He's like he had this story about himself. Um, and actually, when you think book reviews, that's literally someone slotting you into the story they have about themselves, and it doesn't quite fit the story they went to tell themselves. Um, yeah, no, it's totally true. And one of the remarkable things about publishing it in America and also in the UK is the book never changed. I mean, every single word is the same, but it's the readers who change. And and so it's people's reaction to the book and what they bring to the experience of reading that, that adjusts that um, has been really fascinating. Well, I hope that you will be over in the UK very soon uh, once <laughs> once you can get out of the US and I hope we'll see you at a book event very soon and you can uh, lap up all the praise from all the readers and all the different perspectives and get the uh, yeah the sort of book experience you deserve <laughs> really oh, thank you thank you so much Hajar it's been brilliant to talk to you oh thank you I'm so glad honestly I've been looking forward to this uh, whole month since I read it so this is absolutely such a thrill thank you so much Nicholas all right look after yourself bye bye and give my best to your mum <laughs> will do <laughs> you should love that <laughs> all right see you later